I hope you realize what extremely heavy Californian accents we have. I hope you understand when the feedback comes in. That will be part of it. Hello and welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we correct your comic misconceptions one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier and I am joined by my co-host, the royal robot, Mike Thompson. (laughs) That's right. All my circuits are platinum or, I don't know, gold, gold plated, something. Oh, gold-plated. You've got, like, diamond-encrusted things. They also serve a purpose, being one of the sharpest items or hardest. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) Thank you for that intro. (laughs) Of course. Well, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Now, today we're discussing the final installment of our March Movie Madness. Now, I am throwing heavy quotes around March Movie Madness because it is actually April. It's almost tax day at this point. It's almost tax day, so we bled out a little bit, but we're trying to do these bi-weekly. We got a little ahead of ourselves because we got so excited just to, to be talking about these things that we did a few more than we really anticipated in March. I would say to our listeners' benefit. Yeah, sure. I concur. (laughs) So we are doing a deep dive into Wonder Woman's origins today. Now, I'm not just talking about the origins of the character, but also of their creator and the reasons and motivations that drove this comic into existence. I'm excited about this. I am too. These movies were really pleasant surprises for different reasons. I will agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, before we get into that, though, we love to do that whole one cool thing you've read or watched lately. And Mike, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah, so I've been consuming a lot of Star Trek lately. I really enjoy the franchise in general, but I have this deep abiding passion for Deep Space Nine because my great uncle, who was essentially my grandfather when I was growing up, we used to watch the show together every Sunday when we would go over to their house for dinner. So like that was this this wonderful bonding activity with this guy who used to be a dive bomber in World War II and his very nerdy little 11-year-old nephew. I have these very treasured memories, and I have the entire series on DVD, Deep Space Nine, which I will be buried with, by the way. But both the entire series and the recent documentary about the show is on Amazon Prime, so... I've been rewatching all of that and I've been actually rereading some of the comics. And then last week, Star Trek Legends came out on Apple Arcade and it's fine. It's nothing special, but it's a a fun distraction if you're a Trekkie who wants to just mash up all the various characters from the different series together. So I currently have a away team with characters from the next generation and then Discovery. And then the original series all together. And it's dumb, but it's fun. But this has led me down this rabbit hole. And I think that we should probably wind up doing an episode on Star Trek's history and comics and how it actually helped shape the MCU as we know it. 
I would love that. That sounds like so much fun. And I love Star Trek as well. I used to watch Star Trek with my dad. We were a next gen family. So I, you know, next gen and Riker jumping over chairs is like very Mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart. I'm really bummed that that is not an animation in Star Trek Legends. It really makes me so grumpy. (laughs) What a miss. This is such a missed opportunity. (laughs) What about you? What have you been uh, reading or watching lately? So I've been casually reading through a reprint of giant size X-Men from 1975. And and I say casually because I just kind of every once in a while I'll pick it up and I'll read through a few pages and be like, "Ah, that was fun. And (laughs) kind of put it back down again between whatever I'm doing. So, of course, you know, they're they're retro comics and, you know, things are going to it's me. Things are going to rub me the wrong way about some of the retro comics comic that's almost 40 years old, possibly having some problematic elements to it. Go on. Yeah, no, I try to set aside a lot of that, but it is quite difficult with my very outspoken mind of mine. But one scene that really bothered me was from Storm's introduction. Mm. Professor X seeks out Storm in her native Kenya, where she's legitimately saving the countryside by using her weather powers to get rid of drought. Mm -hmm. Right. But Professor X has the audacity to show up and say, nah, listen, like, I know you're helping, quote unquote, helping people here, but I also need your help. And I'm much more important. Let's be real. It's just a whole bag of yikes. Yeah. I mean... What year did Giant Size X-Men come out? Was that 75? It was right. 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the yeah. same year that we got Lois Lane turning black for oh. a literal white savior piece of journalism. Racial sensitivity was not really a thing back then. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do try to put myself into that mindset. It's just so cringy, though, in this day and yeah. age to to see things like that. Yeah. But... What I do like about it mm-hmm. is that everybody is so salty to one another, like oh, legitimately really? so salty. They're so sassy to one another. Every other page is just a roast battle between the members of the X-Men where they're like, yeah, one eye. And like, <laughs> Good. I think I read a reprint of that when I was like 12 or 13, but I haven't reread it at all recently. So I'll have to go back and check that out. I'll throw it your way. Borrow it. <laughs> Thanks. It's, Appreciate that. It's fun. <laughs> well, let's get into the the meat of our episode, and this was definitely a, a meaty topic. And I know I told you a little bit earlier. I love me a good rabbit hole. Yeah, I love jumping just right into them. Right off the top, I read more like I listened to, but I mean it was a lot of time spent. Three different audiobooks on the topic. <laughs> yeah. No, that's. Awesome. I'm so excited to hear about all of it. And the hard part then was whittling down what information I really wanted to to give you. I, I highly recommend all of these resources, and I really want to just throw them out at the top. We will also throw them into the show notes. But I highly recommend, if you're interested in this topic, go read more about this, because I'm not even touching the surface of these books. They are amazing. So the first one that I read was... It was actually an article from Smithsonian.com titled The Surprising Origin Story of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore, which led me to Jill Lepore's larger book, or I would say more extended book, called The Secret History of Wonder Woman. 
It was also read by the author. So if you're a book on tape person, highly recommend listening to it. She's one of those people who really keeps your attention and she doesn't have that kind of drowsy lilt that some people do while they're reading. So I definitely, I was able to stay really focused on it. And the last one was Wonder Woman Psychology by Trina Robbins. And that had a couple of different narrators, but that one was also very interesting and talked about all of the different aspects of the time and the different parts of psychology and gets more into because, you know, spoiler alert, the author was a psychologist. It does get deeper into that whole aspect of the reasons behind the comic in that way. That's really cool. And I'm really excited to hear everything that you learned because this is a topic that I had a vague awareness of, but I have tried to stay as in the dark as possible for this episode because I'm really excited to learn from you about this. Awesome. Well, let's all go on a learning journey together, folks. What do you say? Yeah, hop on the magic school bus, kids. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to hang out with goth Miss Frizzle. Oh my gosh, I know I'm wearing all black today. And I have a high <laughs> bun. I'm very McGonagall right now. Mr. Porter! <laughs> so, Diana Prince is the secret identity of Wonder Woman, but... Did you know that the creator of Wonder Woman had a secret identity himself? Well, today we are going to be discussing the creator of Wonder Woman, Charles Moulton, or should I say, William Moulton Marston. Marston's name, like his stories, were an amalgamation of fact and fiction. His middle name mixed with that of Max Gaines, one of the co-founders of All-Star Comics and later DC, which stands for Detective Comics. Fun fact, I didn't know that, mm -hmm. where Wonder Woman made her debut. But Marston was hiding more than just a name. He had an entire life that he kept hidden from the world. William Moulton Marston was born in Massachusetts in May of 1893 to Frederick William Marston and Annie Marston. They bestowed upon him his mother's maiden name, Moulton, as a middle name, and as I've mentioned, the last name he later uses as his nom de plume. By all accounts, he seemed to have a pretty easy childhood, though I did hear reports that he was in the military for a stint, I should say, acting as a psychologist. I believe that was after his Harvard education, though. He was accepted to Harvard for his advanced education, and he eventually graduated and became a professor of psychology. While attending Harvard, Marston had many interests one of them being the intelligent and motivated Elizabeth Holloway, whom he would later marry and who had been taking courses in one of the lesser, quote-unquote, lesser universities that, you know, allowed women at that time. That was pretty standard at the time, right? Higher education for women yeah. was a new thing that was very looked down upon. Oh, it was incredibly new. This was the early 1900s. We're talking before 1910, that area. Women didn't have the right to vote yet, which we definitely will get into didn't have the right to vote until 1920. So that was a good few years before that point. So yeah. the schools had, the male schools would have a, a sister school, basically, or a lesser school. And for Harvard, that was Radcliffe, which is where Holloway went. And this was considered, again, the sister school, but of course didn't have the same name and you didn't get the same degree. You still graduated from Radcliffe, and women really didn't have the option to go down that actual Harvard route, which, of course, didn't give them an edge at all. No edge. Thanks a lot. 
Yeah. What did you use a degree for back then? I mean, like as a were... woman, nothing. What are you going to do with this degree in your home, in the kitchen? The oven doesn't need you to have a degree. It's just so gross. It's not a master's in baking roasts, Linda. Uh, and how they wished it were, you would think. Harvard acted yeah. like that. It was rough. She did, however, finish her education and become a lawyer with her degree being issued from Radcliffe. Despite petitioning multiple times to get a Harvard degree, since she was taking the same classes, <laughs> it were the same classes. With the same professors, so, too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The class just had women in it instead of men. That was the only difference. During college, she and Marson were inseparable. One of the biographies I read stated that there was this rule that a woman could not walk or ride unaccompanied with a man. However, Holloway thought that was a completely stupid rule and just didn't follow it, which I love. <laughs> She's like, fuck that. That's so good. <laughs> and everything else I read about her said, fuck the rules. I do what I want, which is so amazing for a woman in the early 1900s. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting concept right now, let alone the 1900s. Yeah, we still have all of these societal norms that women are not supposed to go against. Yeah. So Marston's varied interests also included a search for the truth, quote unquote, the truth. And this was partially inspired. Now, part of what he invented, I should say, was inspired by an observation by Holloway that when she got mad or excited, her blood pressure seemed to climb. And from that, Marston created the earliest version of what we now know as the lie detector test, or polygraph. The test as we know it now measures more than just blood pressure, which was really the only thing he was checking on. Blood pressure in and of itself isn't going to tell you everything that you quote-unquote need to know for a lie detector to be effective. That being said, it's also mostly inadmissible, <laughs> as we know it now, in the US, U.S. court of laws, depending on the place. And both parties have to agree to have it be accepted into the court case, which I found I fascinating. Didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew that growing up, lie detector tests were considered to be kind of this infallible thing and and then yeah. it was like well you know you can sort of get around it by all these old wives tales of like you know you put a, a tack in your shoe and you press your toe against it and the pain messes up the results and then later on i found out that yeah they're not really great they're not really admissible anymore but i didn't know that because i know that a lot of law enforcement still loves to rely on it yeah and i think about the if you think about when you're nervous you could have a lot of different reasons for being nervous, not because you're lying necessarily. You could be a bad test taker. And then you suddenly look like a guilty party. It could be as yeah. easy as that. I'm just thinking about all the times that I had to give public speeches, either yeah. for class presentations or later on when I was a journalist and I was moderating panels. Every time my pulse would be through the roof. Yep. Same. Now, can you yeah. imagine being somebody who is 
of an oppressed or a minority population who's being put into a situation where they have people of power who have them in a room and they have control. And that is a really scary thing. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare scenario. Yeah, I can imagine my heart rate going up in that situation. So having that be the measure doesn't seem like the best of ideas, in my opinion. That being said, it does seem to be admissible in the court of Steve Wilkos and other daytime television shows. Mike, tell me the truth. Do you or have you ever watched those daytime shows like Maury or Jerry Springer or Steve Wilkos? Yeah, so... (laughs) Not only did I watch Maury during the daytime when I was just working on stuff at school and I wanted something on in the background, but I was a staff photographer for a newspaper during a celebrity golf tournament. And Maury Povich was one of the celebrity golfers. He was really nice. I wound up chatting with him for a minute while he was waiting for his turn at golf. I really feel like I missed an opportunity to have him record saying that I was not the father because that was the big thing that he was doing back then was all those paternity tests. You say that like he's not still doing that. I don't know. Does he still have a show? I don't have TV anymore. Probably. I think so. You know, I really just catch clips. What I'll do is if I'm working and I have to be paying attention to my work or if I if it's not something mindless like entering data or something, I like to listen to podcasts if I can actually pay attention. But if I can't, I'll just put on and I don't watch it, but I'll just put on rotating clips through Facebook or something and Mm -hmm. I'll just go through Facebook, watch, and just whatever comes up next comes up. And every once in a while, we'll get one of those Steve Wilkos and oh, yeah. Steve. And I'm like, was, oh, here we go. And it's always, a, it's always a lie detector test still to this day. Was Steve the guy who got his own show sprung off of, like spun off of Jerry Springer? The, I, you, the security you guy? Said sprung off Springer, correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my roommate and I in college Loved to watch Jerry Springer at night because it was the trashiest shit and we just oh. could not stop. It was like a train wreck. You couldn't look away, which I think was oh, yeah. generally the appeal of Jerry Springer. But it's hard to resolve that because every interview I've seen with the guy, he seems like a really you know, pleasant, down-to-earth human being. And then I'm like, but you put the trashiest shit on television and it is demonstrable the effect that you had on daytime talk shows for a long time and still to this day in certain ways. But for a while, everybody yeah. was aping that. Anyway, this was a tangent. <laughs> That's okay. It was exactly the tangent I wanted. <laughs> Maury seemed like a lovely person for all two minutes that I interacted with him. And I hope that Jerry Springer is the person that he seems to be during interviews. <laughs> Same. Well, speaking of life drama, Marston had plenty. Oh, do tell. Yeah, he was already married to his wife, the aforementioned Elizabeth who, for consistency, I'm going to continue calling Holloway, though she did take his name when they got married. Marston, working as a professor at Tufts, which is another university, fell in love with one of his students, Olive Byrne, in 1925, and advised Mm. his wife that Byrne could either move in or Marston was leaving. Oh. Yeah. That that was what the history said. Okay. (laughs) So we'll talk through the movie later. Yeah, because my only familiarity with this so far is what I saw in the movie. That was my reaction. I now I did my research prior to watching the movie for this exact reason. (laughs) So I watched the movie last night. It's super fresh. Yeah, I watched it yesterday afternoon. And then I watched the other one which we'll get into. So it was the origins of Wonder Woman and and then Wonder Woman, a little bit more modern incarnation. Perfect. Yeah. Byrne 
interestingly enough, was the niece of Margaret Sanger. Have you heard that name before? Yeah, she was like one of the early women's rights crusaders. Yeah. Yep. Yep. She was a renowned women's rights and birth control activist Mm -hmm. who, along with her sister, Ethel Byrne, opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, which is so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Both, however, were arrested for the illegal distribution of contraception. And (laughs) Ethel Byrne almost died during a hunger strike while she was in jail. I remember reading about that, like in in one of my... One of my history classes. I mean, that checks out. It was bad news bears. So I didn't write this down, but I'm just remembering. But I did read or listen to sources that said that multiple women were arrested Mm -hmm. and went on hunger strike and they were force feeding them. It was just it was bad news. The whole thing was just bad. Yeah. So this obviously was during a time when women were still fighting for the right to vote, as I'd mentioned earlier. And the idea of feminism was just a twinkle of a notion. So Byrne and Holloway and Marston, all three lived together for years as a thruple. Mm -hmm. Super interestingly, they made up a backstory for Olive as a widowed relative. And both Holloway and Byrne were raising Marston's children. Byrne's children were always told that their father had passed away. And did not find out about the truth of their father's identity until after his death. Wow. So he fathered children with both women. Correct? He did. Okay. Yeah, he fathered, I believe, two with Byrne and three with Holloway. Okay. Yeah. They all lived together in a house. And again, they managed to keep it secret enough that even their children didn't know. That's crazy. In the same house. It's so wild to me. Like, how do that you... and Insane to me. You fathered children with this woman and they didn't know. No one knew. I I can't fathom that, honestly, especially in a time when everybody was up at everybody else's business. Oh, yeah. It's not like we had Netflix. You needed to invent your own drama. You look out the window. Before Marston died, because he died fairly young, as I remember it. He did, 53. So that was the whole thing in the movie is that they got outed as as being in a throuple to their neighbors. Nothing. Never happened. Never happened. They didn't get in trouble at the school. They didn't get in trouble with the neighbors. None of that. It was seamless. That actually makes me really happy. It did. Me too. I love the idea of it sounds like a relatively healthy family. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. You know, from what I was hearing, because we're still in 1910, we're still in the 1920s, I guess, at this point. It still is like Marston is Papa Marston. He's still man of the house. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, especially when you're looking at this whole how it was phrased. And this is just a couple of sources. But just as far as how it's phrased in this, I I don't know that Holloway really had a choice other than, well, I could be stuck here with I don't know if she had children at that point. I could maybe be stuck as a single mother in the 1920s or I could allow this other woman to come into my house. Right. But what's great about that is Byrne was able to just stay home and raise the kids. So Holloway was still able to go out and have a career. Oh, wow. Yeah. She still went out and had a career. And so that's where it's, I I have a hard time saying definitively black and white. Marston was a feminist, as we would call him now. Probably not. But he definitely had the leanings of that. And he definitely was far advanced for his time for oh, sure. Oh yeah, I I can only imagine. 
Was he still teaching during this time or was he doing something else? He did so many things. Okay. He did so many things. And I'll I'll actually get into that a, a little bit further. But it was such a, it did seem like a good situation for everyone. Marston had multiple professional interests. And Marston believed not only in equality for women, but even further, he believed that society should be matriarchal, which is where he goes a little bit more like a, whoo, he just kind of swings off, you know, because he's like, no, 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 we should go in the exact 180. There's no middle ground here. Women should rule society, which, All right. I mean, sure. Right now we live with men. Let's flip it over on its head and see how it goes, I guess. But I would settle for equality. Speaking as a mediocre white dude, I'm totally fine with this plan. Great. Let's put it into effect. Who can I call? <laughs> Papa Joe. <laughs> I'll bring it up at the next meeting, at the, at the next mediocre white dude club meeting. <laughs> I knew you guys had meetings. The gays definitely have meetings. Well, yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm excluding you from the LGBT community. That's rude of me. And my apologies. It, the rest of them already do already. It's fine. Touche. <laughs> we did have that conversation earlier. Yeah. Biphobia. It's a real problem. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, we were talking about Marsden and his wild matriarchal ideas. And yes. his idea was that Women were more thoughtful, empathetic, and level-headed when making decisions and would be better suited to positions of leadership. Okay. And Marston is quoted as saying, and if you wanted to read this quote for me. Oh, and- okay. Frankly, Wonder Woman is a psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who, I believe, should rule the world. So you can kind of see where he was going with that. Obviously, She's powerful. She's more powerful than most of the men that she comes across. Mm -hmm. And he really was trying to flip that on its head with this character. Yeah, there was nothing like her before that. No, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. However, Marston's entry into the entertainment business didn't start with feminine power of Wonder Woman, but instead with the film industry. And again, this is early film. We're talking, he was in the silent film era and then moved into the talkies. The golden age. The golden age. And there he wrote screenplays and later acted as the consulting psychologist for Universal Pictures, which I didn't even know that was a thing. Having a consulting psychologist makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. I just had no idea that was even a role that existed back then. Yeah, I know. And back then, even, I know. Yeah. And at this point, he'd already been published, having written dozens of magazine articles and a novel about his opinions, let's just call them, or his findings about psychology at the time. And it is called a novel. So just keep that in mind. Huh. All right. It's, it's called Emotions of People, I believe. And they do mention it briefly in the film. I didn't read it. I'm sure I could jump around and do it. I just didn't want to get into 1920s garbage, to be yeah, honest with you. <laughs> He was then asked in 1941 to be the consulting psychologist for DC by Maxwell Charles Gaines, who was more or less the creator of comics as we know them. Mm-hmm. At the time, Gaines was under fire for content that folks deemed at the time to be risque. So he hired Marsden to take off some of the heat by approving the content that was going out. 
with Marston on the team, the largest complaint that they received was the aggressive masculinity that seemed to be the theme of all of the comic books. Like, I Marston's never would have predicted that. Yeah, like, yeah, I know. You would think that we live in this society that values men so much. You would think that we'd be able to just carry on with that, you know, and have that one form. Yeah, especially during that era, which was right when yeah. we were getting into World War II. And we were going hard for those traditional masculine values. Yep. We want strong men who can go out there and die. I mean, fight for us. Yes. Yes. Marston suggested that the best way to counter that idea with the critics was to create a female superhero. Now, Gaines accepted the idea, but told Marston he had to write the strip himself. So he did. And with the help of illustrator Harry G. Peter, Wonder Woman was, in essence, born. She was fierce. She was strong. She had a lasso that, was, that made others obey. It wasn't a truth thing, though we now know it as the lasso of truth. It was an obedience situation, and everybody who was lassoed had to obey her. So it was more of a dominant situation, which we will absolutely get to, and it makes a little bit more sense. Although, there again, with his lie detector, the truth also makes sense. Either way, it tracks. But yeah. it was obedience. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> One of her most important qualities was that she didn't kill. That was her empathy. Mm. That was that piece of her that was more feminine than some of those other comic book characters, those typical comic book characters. Yeah. Even in the early days, I, I know Batman killed people originally. He was like a goon. And I think Superman did too in his early run. I think. Mm -hmm. I can't remember for sure. I believe so. And then they, when they got the comics code, yeah, when it was stricter with the comics code, that's when they kind of moved into less actual killing from what I was reading, I believe. Uh, you know, I don't Maybe know for certain, but it may have been before that because they were just, they were such popular characters for kids, but I'm not entirely certain, but I know that the early appearances are you know, pretty brutal. I remember Batman hanging a dude from his plane. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, Superman came out in 1939. So yeah, yeah it's mm. early. Hey, Mike, I'm going to send you a picture. Okay. And so this is the first introduction to Wonder Woman, which was seen on, on the cover of Sensation Comics. Will you please describe the cover? Yeah. So it is Sensation Comics number one, the best of the DC magazines. You see Wonder Woman. I'm not sure if the sun is really enlarged or if she is just jumping in front of something that's yellow to kind of add a little color to it. But she is being shot at by a bunch of what appear to be mobsters somewhere in Washington, D.C., because the Capitol is there. And is that is that the Lincoln Memorial? I can't tell what other building it is that has the flag. Apparently, they're right across the street from each other. Apparently. <laughs> not I'm real not, life. This is not, not true scale. <laughs> it looks like a vaguely government building. I can't tell. Yeah, I think it is probably supposed to be something like that. <laughs> but it says featuring the sensational new adventure strip character. Wonder Woman. You got to get that exclamation point in. <laughs> She's kind of jacked, like even back then, which I kind of love. 
She is wearing a truly unflattering pair of boots that are only going up to mid-calf as opposed to what we know now where they're just above the knee and armored and badass. But it's the outfit that actually she's still sort of rocking today where she's got the kind of red bustier with the gold eagle on it. And then she's got the bulletproof bracelets. And then she's got what I can only describe it as the, the bottom part of a sundress kind of skirt where it's like very flowy as opposed yeah. to that, that gladiatorial skirt that she has now. But it's very identifiably Wonder Woman. Yeah. And it goes back and forth between this was her first debut, but it wasn't her first issue. Mm-hmm. Her first issue, she was wearing more of what people were calling underpants of this same pattern. And that's what we're more used to. Yeah, we're used to those like little booty shorts that she's got rocking. So right off the bat, Mike, if you were a critic in 1942, what would your main complaint about this be? Just based on the cover. I don't know. They were really concerned about the violence that was being marketed towards kids. So probably the gunfire, probably the fact that she was showing too much skin. That's it. Um, she wasn't I mean, clothed enough. Oh, they didn't care about the gunfire. Oh, of course. That was not care. what was, that was not the problem. <laughs> Gasp. The drama was that Wonder Woman was wearing far too few clothes for Puritan America. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually super tame. It's God. really tame. Okay. When you think about other superheroes that we have nowadays, especially, you've got these massive boots that are up to her neck and this little waist and like wearing a thong but this is so covered yeah it, it, a lot of modern comics have these very almost suggestive poses you remember when the avengers came out and and mm-hmm. all of the dudes had very action-oriented poses and then black widow was turned so that we could see her butt it she was had, more, like her arm up so that you could see her boob line yeah. yeah and it's a really action-oriented pose and it's very matter of fact there is nothing sexualized about that which i kind of love marson made it a point for her to be doing action things mm-hmm. and for her to be doing sports and for her to be doing things that were very active because women weren't given that as a role So he really wanted to present that as another facet of, hey, this can also be feminine. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought so, too. And while a slight costume adjustment seemed easy enough to deal with, some critics also had qualms with other aspects of the comic, namely the depiction of women, especially our heroine, being tied or chained up or left in other positions of containment. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now, Marston's intention behind this seemed to be twofold, in my opinion. Part one, feminism. And part two, I also think he was just a kinky motherfucker, which is great. Like, that's fine. Yeah. No kink shame. But we're going to briefly discuss both. <laughs> so part one, feminism. All right. Marston was a supporter of women's rights, as we said. He was a supporter of the right to vote and the ability to have access to contraceptives. He'd been a supporter of these movements in his own right and was particularly struck by the female suffragettes who would chain themselves to a location in protest. Chains seemed to him to be the very image brought to life of how society chains down and stifles women from succeeding either chaining them to their family before they're wed, 
chaining them to their new husband or chaining them to pregnancies that they either cannot afford or don't want. Yeah. In each of these portrayals of Wonder Woman being tied down, there is always the moment that she's able to break free from her restraints in triumph, which is just a perfect metaphor for the modern woman being able to break free from the societal change that still bind her. And this hope that women will be able to eventually free themselves for good. In everything I've read, you had women suffragettes chaining themselves to places in protest. Same thing with the contraceptive movement. That was a huge metaphor for both of those movements. So it would make sense that if you are portraying a feminist during that era, that that might be a theme. Mm -hmm. And I think people who maybe didn't support or were unfamiliar with the movements might have something to say negatively against the imagery, especially if they didn't understand. We had a lot of people back then who were really pushing for, for propriety. And, mm -hmm. and basically, you can't let immoral elements affect the children. They always fucking <laughs> latch on to like, think of the children, protect the children. Fuck off. We still do that shit. I know. This is just like Pizzagate all over again. Yeah. Pizzagate before Pizzagate. Yeah. Well, did they know? <laughs> but part two, the kink factor. Mm -hmm. Marston had a whole dominance theory that I think tells a lot more about him than it does to the human experience in general. I'm not going to get deep into the theory because we both have lives, but... It pertains to dominance and submission, at the very minimum. You don't say. Yo, I know, right? What shock. <laughs> at this point, it's pretty well established that individuals have different drives and things that excite them. But I think that Marston was looking at the world from a place of, oh, I'm like this, so everybody is like this. Which just isn't the case for everybody. Right. But it's also like a very stereotypical kind of dude attitude. Oh, yeah. This is my worldview, and so it must be everybody's. Absolutely. Again, he's some Harvard bro. Yeah. 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 You're <laughs> able to just go to Harvard in 1925, like NBD. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be yeah. living near there soon. Oh, God. No, I know. Oh. I'm going to be visiting you soon. I've got the people there. You're fine. We'll get you there. <laughs> We'll get you there. <laughs> but my impression is that he assumed that everyone else was a little kinky like him. Yeah. Also, it needs to be stated that, again, in interviewing Marsden's children, they never saw toys, ropes, anything that he had mentioned in the comics or that were the things that were being taken as this great offense. They didn't see any of those things. So it was, this was also a complete surprise to them. Nothing related to bondage. That, yeah, that's wild, man. I just, I think about the fact that my partner has stories about how when everyone was out of the house, she would just snoop around when she was growing up. And I remember doing that too. And yeah, kids get into shit. We also grew up in the in the era of the latchkey child, though. Yeah. I mean, my parents would just, and not for long periods of time, it's not like they would go out of town or something, but they'd leave us and say, don't answer the door, you're not yeah. home, don't answer the phone, we'll call and ring twice and then hang up and then call back if we want to talk to, you know, whatever. There was a code. Mm -hmm. 
But there again, we lived in a different time. We did. Even this many years. I mean, it just we sound like old people every time we have this conversation. You know, someone pointed out that if Back to the Future was taking place today, Marty McFly would be going back to like 91. Don't do this to me. <laughs> we're old, Jess. I know. We're, I know. Uh, we're like, we're, we're <laughs> basically dead at this point. It's just we're bad. <laughs> okay, Mike. This is going to seem like such a non sequitur. Okay. But have you ever had to do a DISC personality assessment for any of your office jobs? I don't think so. The name isn't familiar, okay. but describe this to me. It's basically, it's, it's like any of those other stupid employee personality tests where they try to like, what part of the team are you? How can we use your strengths? I'm a supervisor, so I've had to go through all this right. crap. Uh, and it's cool. It's a cool concept, but it's also like mind numbing if it's not your wheelhouse. No. So I've never taken anything like this. No. Okay. So yeah, you basically answer a bunch of questions about what you would do in a situation. And it's kind of one of those no wrong answers mm -hmm. kind of tests. And then they put you into one of four different categories. So I have had to do this before and, and other ones like it. But I mm -hmm. honestly can't remember what I scored. And I'm not going to get into a long-winded lecture on the topic either. <laughs> but suffice it to say that part of that is dominance. That's the D. And part of it is compliance, which is the C. So was this something and, that Marcin came up with? Yeah. Marcin came up with it. And it's we still use Ow. a version of this today, okay. which is so interesting. So far, he's got lie detector. Check. We still kind of use it today. Mm -hmm. At least Steve Wilkos does. And then now he's got the disc, which I definitely have taken. Now, it doesn't look the same. The categories are not the same as when he first created them. It's a little less kink forward, I would say. But you still have those yeah. two that are vibing, you know. And for those of you unfamiliar with the kink scene, power dynamics in play can sometimes come in the form of having one dominant and one submissive partner. But again, not everybody functions in that way. Ultimately, Wonder Woman was allowed to continue as she was, delighting readers even to this day, though of course the writing has changed hands multiple times, meaning that her true meaning was sometimes lost to those who were in charge of telling her story. For example, once Wonder Woman entered the Justice League, she was immediately made to be the secretary. And there were many times that she was relegated to staying behind because she just had so much to take care of. And, oh, little old me couldn't get involved in having lifting bullshit. <laughs> Goddamn. She's uh. so fucking strong. She has powers and Batman doesn't. Why the fuck does he get to go on missions? Why the fuck isn't Batman the secretary? That's my question. Oh, he has money. He's rich. That's my own question. That's his superpowers. Mm. He's rich. Goddamn. Yeah. Thanks for that, Ben Affleck. We know. Still like him as Batman. Yeah, I'll die on that hill. He was good. Yeah. Yeah, he was good. There was also a point where she lost her powers completely, though did gain them back. Those were times that Wonder Woman didn't necessarily feel like the fierce warrior she truly is. Yeah, actually, Brian's Comics, our local comic shop, the first time I went in there, they had the all new Wonder Woman issue where it's like this iconic cover where it's her tearing up, I think the original version of her and it's like get ready for the all new wonder woman i think that's when they depowered her i think Ugh. i'm not certain i'm really bummed that i didn't pick that up when it was there the idea behind that apparently was supposed to be that would make her more human and relatable but that's not 
you're just taking away the things that make her a stronger character for people that look up to her. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Did you Were you able to hear my eyes rolling out of their sockets? Or? I did, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a really palpable eye roll. <laughs> well, Marston passed away at the age of 53 of cancer. So very young, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Holloway and Byrne continued living together until they both went into the hospital around the same time in 1990, when Byrne passed away in a different room in the same hospital at the age of 86. Okay. I got teary writing this, so I'm probably going to get teary reading it. (laughs) Upon hearing the news of Byrne's passing, Holloway sang a poem by Tennyson in her hospital room. So everything I've read alludes to the idea that Holloway and Byrne were also in a relationship with each other, not just the man with all of them. Though they did have, there were women who were kind of rotating in the house. It wasn't just these two. There were Mm. other women who at different periods of time lived in the house undetected by the way can we just give it up for the marsden family like how how no that's what i'm saying i don't know money mm. and the dude had his little hands in everything so he probably just knew a bunch of people i don't know how do you get away with things as a guy i, I literally can't even imagine this is my friend who's coming over to assist with this thing the question is were they just coming in to visit or were they living there for periods of time they were living there for parts. I got nothing then. Yes. I know. Me too. I know. Okay. Let's run through. You have a widowed relative. You could be bringing in a nanny. You could be bringing in another person who works in the house, et cetera, et cetera. You could be bringing in a cousin or another type of relative. I'm sure you could excuse up the yin yang. Yeah. I mean, you can come up with excuses, but if they're like living with you for any amount of time, there are those moments of small intimacies that other people will pick up on. I don't know. I mean, were the kids just dumb? <laughs> I, I don't know. Like how that requires some serious commitment to acting, I feel. Yeah. And, oh, and yeah. So much fucking effort. I was just going to say that. Can you imagine? I can't. No. The mental strain alone. Like. I have one partner, I have stepkids, and I have pets. And that's like, <laughs> that's kind of the extent of my bandwidth. <laughs> okay, so I am non-monogamous or poly polyamorous. Right. So I do have multiple partners, although I they're what I would consider like secondary partners or partners that I don't, I don't live with them. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily see them on a, a super regular basis, but I still maintain a relationship with them and I still consider right. them partners. Yeah. To whatever, you know, effect that is. But it is a lot of work and it's so much communication. And you can just tell that Marsden had to have been really communicative. And that whole family had to have been really communicative. They must have been. Or else how? At the same time, like that era, men weren't necessarily expected to be super communicative or show a lot of emotion or be the one to provide nurturing experiences with the kids so maybe they just didn't get a lot of exposure to the kids and were really just exposed to their mothers and the motherly figures i don't i mean this is all completely uninformed (laughs) speculation so oh absolutely yeah i i don't take anything that i'm saying with even a grain of salt like this requires (laughs) oh no absolutely at any rate holloway passed away in 1993 at the ripe age of 100 oh wow Okay, so, so there's a little bit she of was around between her. Yeah, and- there was. Okay, there was. Yeah, it sounds like about mm, 
little bit less than 20 years, about 14 years. Yeah. But if you think about it, she was in college. Yeah. He was her teacher and Uh they were already married. Right. He went to, I want to say that he started college like prior to 1910. And they met and she moved into the house in 1925. So that's a good 15 yeah, because no, he, he, he would have been about 17 in 1910, right? Based on, like, he was 1893, he said? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it sounds like Holloway was born the same year. hmm Yeah, and I gotta say, the love story between Holloway and Byrne sounds like something straight out of a movie, which we're about to get into. But we all want to have that partner who is with us till the bitter end and then they sing a poem in our memory like god damn god it's just so beautiful yeah they had it when they lived together in the house they had adjoining rooms okay and this is where it's like how did your kids not know because marston would sleep in both (laughs) how did he like literally how did they not know yeah i don't know it's wild to me and then when they were older Burn and Holloway lived in a little two-bedroom place in Tampa together. Mm-hmm. This cute little okay. place, apparently. So let's talk about our reactions here. We yeah. did also watch Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women, which I think it's worth a watch, in my yeah. opinion, just off the bat. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. And it was a movie that totally flew under the radar for me when it came out. I was vaguely aware of it, but I really did not know much about it before we talked about what movies we wanted to do. And March being Women's Month, it seemed like a a natural conclusion after the DCEU. Yeah, absolutely. That train wreck. I'm sorry. I was clearing (laughs) my throat. We we enjoyed Um, (laughs) one of the movies. We did. We did enjoy one of the movies, and we enjoyed aspects of two others. One of them. I trailed off. <laughs> My brain wouldn't let me do it. It's like, no, I, just I don't finish like, that sentence. I mean, we kind of enjoyed parts of the Snyder Cut. <laughs> like we did. We liked like, it better. It better than. I don't like admitting. We're still bitching about the Snyder Cut. Look I at know. this. Three it's episodes. Back. In. God damn it! We've literally. <laughs> Can't get away from it. Zack Snyder hit us up. No, don't. You're not going to like what you hear. <laughs> I'm going to get tweeted at. Zack Snyder's going to be like, B. <laughs> I, want, I want the Snyder cut of Professor Marston and the women, which will be just scenes of Luke Evans with the women in the background. And <laughs> I don't do anything else. <laughs> and there's no dialogue in this one at all. It's just... It's just heavy looks. (laughs) It's it's just all the scenes from that sorority scene. Just over and over. Ah! Just lots of dark candlelit scenes. Definitely going to talk about that. Oh, Oh, God. Okay. What did you think about the film overall? Like I said, I overall really enjoyed it. I had heard about this movie a little bit. I remember my weightlifting partner at the time was telling me about how she and her wife had gone and enjoyed it. And she thought that I would really like it. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And then. It just I didn't get around to seeing it while it was out and it's very limited run in theaters. And then I don't think it ever came to any streaming platform when I was aware of it. I was really surprised by actually how much I did enjoy it. I thought it was. A shockingly sweet love story. 
and and I was expecting something much more judgmental or scandalous. I was really expecting a much more judgy story about the Marstons and Byrne raising an entire family as a throuple. Um, I was too. I was wondering if the relationship was ever outed and if they ever did break up like they did in the movie, because that felt kind of forced and it felt very Hollywood. And I was like, all right, whatever. This is dumb. At the end where they're on their knees submitting to burn spot on that was made up there was none of that <laughs> i i still think the most offensive thing about that movie was that they tried to make me think that someone who looked like luke evans was responsible for wonder woman's creation <laughs> so i love luke evans i think he's really a fun actor and i was really glad to see him in a real role as opposed to yeah i saw dracula untold in theaters i saw three sorry oh man i I didn't see Beauty and the Beast in theaters, but I've since seen it. He's one of those actors where I feel like he just needs to be given good roles. He's like Keanu Reeves, where I feel like he's often typecast and just thrust into stuff that aren't really any good. But he was really good in this. That said, I've seen that man shirtless so many times, and I don't know a single comic creator with abs like that. On the flip side, I went into this trying to keep myself as unaware a lot of the history of Marson but I do know what he looked like in his 40s. And that was like a dude in his 70s. Correct. So. Did you watch all at the end of the film? They had all the pictures. Yeah. of Yeah. And you're just like, oh, oh, like because <laughs> Burn and Holloway also not looking like who they cast. No, nope. not even a little bit. Not even at all. OK, this is mean, but I'm like, yes, you look like the type of people who would be in a throuple. <laughs> Like, no. Okay. Fair enough. And especially here's, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of those pictures that I used to see from that era where the women, especially with those two, they looked like the type who would dress up as men and go to the the clubs. Yes, absolutely. And I get that. And it's just a vibe I get. And maybe it's just my gaydar, like my pansexual gaydar is going off. But I mean, that's the ongoing lie that Hollywood loves to tell us is that truly sexy people are in throuples all the time no they're fucking not i'm bi and i was dating here in the bay area and i would occasionally get hit on by people looking for a third and they never looked like that and in my experience and opinion if you go at it with the wrong attitude you're not necessarily going to get what you want out of it and it's not going to be a genuine feeling relationship which i mean like that's relationships in general like i feel like oh yeah i feel like a huge thing of any successful relationship is communications absolutely stay tuned listeners for our next podcast about relationships and and relationship advice and i don't know i don't know where i was going with that oh i was like we have a new podcast i don't know (laughs) (laughs) we're four episodes into this podcast and mike's like Folks, we have a new podcast. <laughs> you know what? I like I like your gusto. <laughs> I like I like how motivated you are. I did have two quibbles about the movie, getting back on topic. First, we earlier mentioned there was no acknowledgement about the problematic nature of how Marston and Burns relationship began where he was her professor and she was his student the movie was very fuzzy with 
time. It was very fluid that way. So it wasn't really explained if she was still his student when the relationship began or if she was his research assistant. But there was that power imbalance in their dynamic. And that was deeply uncomfortable for me because it wasn't addressed. They just kind of hand waved it away. Fine, whatever for the movie. Fine. Second, I felt the same way about that. Yeah, it just yeah. it's gross. And to your point, there is a power dynamic that I was thinking about. If you are trying to please somebody who has some sort of control over you, whatever that looks like, if it's somebody who has your grades or your future career or your education mm -hmm. or even your job, you know, this could be in a job setting. If that person has power over you, you're less inclined to say no to them. And that yeah. automatically puts you at a disadvantage. It was something that I noticed. And I was a little frustrated that it wasn't addressed better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the second was that it didn't feel like we actually got enough time with Wonder Woman. The comics and, and the character felt more like a framing device, but a framing device that we didn't really get a lot of payoff on considering the title of the movie. <laughs> I thought the scenes where he was actually in the comic office and there was a bit where they're like, oh, well, they're upset about the bondage. And and they're like, I feel like there's twice as much. And then he just is like, I put in three times as much. And he keeps walking. And and <laughs> Oliver Platt was so great. And I wanted more of him for a movie that has Wonder Woman or Wonder Women in the title. I just I wanted a little bit more time and acknowledgement. It felt like much more attention was paid just to the relationship for like the first two thirds of the movie. And then he goes with hat in hand to Oliver Platt's character. At, at, was it All-Star Comics? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mix up all the publishers because they've all merged and come together at various points. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, he it just it, it was. And especially because you were like, no, he got hired to like do this to get them out of hot water. Now I'm like, that makes much more sense. Yeah. He didn't um, come at them. They came at him. Considering the importance that we're led to believe that Wonder Woman will be to his story. I mean, she's there like they, they do a number of things where they keep teasing us with Wonder Woman, but we never really get that payoff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about you? Like, like, how did you feel about the movie? So, again, I, I did my research on the topic prior to watching the film. So this will be mostly a what the film did or didn't do correctly kind of per right. published history with my own opinion, of course, sprinkled in, as you'd expect from me. <laughs> so to your point. Most of the drama seems to have been fabricated. There's yeah. no indication that any issues with Radcliffe, like trying to boot him for indecency or with the neighbors regarding their relationship. And again, even their children didn't know until after Marston's passing about their relationship. Mm -hmm. And I didn't read anything about them having split up at any point. And again, I think that was just added for a forceful Hollywood dramatics mm -hmm. power play since we're on the topic of dominance. <laughs> and there again, Marson was already working for Gaines when he created the idea of Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And it was in direct relation to the voice of the critics. So he was answering the critics here. So it didn't necessarily seem like as big of a, you did this thing and now we're going to make you pay. It was like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> The sections with Connie Britton, love her, by the way, want more yeah. of her in my life, just in general. And their back and forth, minus all the people drama, was 
actually pretty accurate as far as capturing the concerns of the day and what was being argued in the lobby against Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And then also pretty accurate in what his counterpoints were in relation to the to the comic itself. Yeah, and I thought that was a smart choice to kind of make her the voice of the critics. Yeah, yeah. That being said, his relationship didn't come up at any point in this, again, because nobody knew about it until after the fact. So it's not like she would have been like, what about those things? You were indecent. Well, no, right. that, that didn't happen. That was all for dramatics. Overall, I really liked it. So again, me as a pansexual, love a good queer film. And also being polyamorous or non-monogamous, it was so nice seeing that, to your point, represented so positively and without judgment. That was so surprising to me. I really thought that there was going to be some sort of aspect from the point of view of the viewer Mm -hmm. to not want them to succeed. But the whole time you really do, you're rooting for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a fan of history and comic books, I think this is a great movie to go check out. My final thought is that it reminded me a lot of Kinsey. Did you ever see that? It had Liam Neeson and Laura Linney in it, and it's all about Kinsey, the guy who created the Kinsey scale of sexuality. Oh, okay. I'll have to check it out. It's great. This kind of reminded me the same way where it's mostly true. It's not quite all there because they have to zhuzh it up for, for the audiences. Yeah. 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 Well, let's move on to our other film that we watched, which was... Wonder Woman from 2009, and that was the animated origin story of Wonder Woman. Yes. So do you want to give an overview of the film for us? Yeah, sure. This is one of the original DC Universe animated original movies, which were, at the time this came out in 2009, they were still in their infancy. They'd only done three before. This one is loosely based on George Perez's acclaimed 1980s storyline called Gods and Monsters, and it's written by Gail Simone and Michael Jelenic. Gail Simone has gotten her own amount of acclaim for writing Wonder Woman as well. The film introduces us to the Amazons who win a war against Ares, and then they're granted the island of Themyscira and immortality in exchange for acting as Ares' jailer by the gods. Diana is later sculpted from clay and given life by the gods. This is kind of in direct opposition to the current mythos of Zeus being her deadbeat dad. And then Diana lives on the island for thousands of years until pretty much the modern day when two key events happen. Steve Trevor crashes on the island by happenstance and then Ares stages a jailbreak. And Diana has to take Steve back to the United States, and he helps her in her quest to stop the God of War. And actually pretty similar to where they tried to go with the original Wonder Woman. So this was absolutely not a cartoon for children. No. no It had (laughs) blood-spattered backgrounds, fairly graphic death scenes, and three beheadings. Mm -hmm. It depicts three beheadings. Yeah. (laughs) We're talking the head flying off and falling dramatically at someone's feet kind of beheading. Right. And that being said, I didn't particularly mind the violent nature of the animation as a movie for adults. As I feel that it was done in a way that felt true to the battle and the struggle of what was happening in the storyline. And it didn't feel overly gross in its depictions or its animations, like just enough to give the definite impression that violence was occurring. 
Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Ares is a super violent guy and he affects everyone around him into violence themselves. So that it did make sense in that way. So things I liked is that it seemed to me like a fairly good representation of Wonder Woman's origin story as it was originally told by Marsden based on what I was reading. Yeah, it it felt like a very classic take on Wonder Woman's origin. And it was very familiar to someone who grew up nominally aware of her origins and reading her mini comics with her action figure and stuff like that. Yeah. Although I have to say one main difference was that the movie was set in seemingly present day America, since at one point Wonder Woman ends up fighting in a mall. And the fighter planes that Steve and company were flying looked modern for 2009. Mm -hmm. Marston's Wonder Woman was originally set in World War II, of course, whereas the 2018 live action film with Gal Gadot was set in World War I. So we've just jumped around. Again, DC is definitely not consistent. It's comic books. And DC's own in comics timeline has been drastically reworked several times just in our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And this time period change, it definitely affects the vibe and political climate of American society at that time. In the cartoon, we're not presented with a particular war or a reason for fighting. We're evidently just supposed to understand that the world of men is in constant battle every moment. Whereas in the original comic and Wonder Woman film, Both took place during large global wars where it wouldn't be a far leap to present the god of war as the cause of those events. Yeah, absolutely. Now, things I didn't like, because apparently I veered into not liking and then we're continuing (laughs) down that road. (laughs) For someone that wasn't raised in a patriarchal society, Diana's internalized misogyny is staggering. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. At one point, she says to Steve, you're starting to sound like a woman when he's discussing having feelings for her. And later says to Ares, how can you expect to beat Zeus if you can't even beat a girl? The fuck? Yeah. The fuck is that? Which kind of goes against everything else that she does in the movie. Yeah, it directly against it. Yeah, so that was irritating. And then, not only that, the president, because apparently they're in Washington, D.C., the president is told that they were saved by a group of armored supermodels, which I had to rewind it and write that line down because I was so grossed out. It's such a condescending and reductive statement to make about individuals that just saved your lives while you apparently slept through the whole situation. Yeah. Mr. President. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it drives home the point that even in heroism, women's worth is still viewed only in her attractiveness. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. They also have Diana do quite a bit of killing with absolutely no thought whatsoever, which is not in the original character at all. That doesn't feel very Diana. Hmm. I mean... No, but at the same time, I don't particularly have a problem with it, but yeah. Yeah, so that was me. Okay. What about you? Where are you at with that? Um, I think I had a slightly more positive take on the movie. <laughs> I mean, 
it sounds like you still enjoyed it, right? Oh, I liked it. I still yeah. liked it. Okay. Yeah. Part of it is just I viewed it at the time when it first came out, and this was one of the first animated original movies, and it was the first one that I remember enjoying. So I think that has definitely tinted my perspective a little bit. You had a nostalgia factor that I didn't. Okay. Because I hadn't seen yeah. it prior. I remember seeing the reviews for it and I was like, oh, this looks really cool. The others that were released before that, they were all, well, two of the three were just straight adaptations of other, you know, quote unquote, iconic stories. So there was Superman mm -hmm. Doomsday, which was the death and life of Superman. And I did not give a shit about that movie. It was really, I felt <laughs> flat. Then there was Justice League, The New Frontier, which is based on a really acclaimed miniseries. And then there was Batman Gotham Knight, which was, if I remember right, it was several different animated shorts and different animated styles. And none of them really did it for me. But the DC Animated Universe, which was helmed by Bruce Timm. So that's like the original Batman animated series from the 90s, as well as the Superman series, and then Justice League, and then Batman Beyond, or vice versa, and then Justice League Unlimited. Those were all incredible. And I knew that eventually we would get to the same point with the animated movies and Wonder Woman felt like that home run that I knew they'd eventually hit. So I really enjoyed the film overall. And even watching it yesterday afternoon, I had a blast, you know, even a decade later. I think its strongest element is that the movie clearly has zero fucks to give. But that battle between the Amazons and Ares is incredibly violent. And it's obvious from the first 30 seconds in that this is going to be a ride. And it doesn't shy away from some really tough narrative elements, like where Hippolyta actually, in that battle, it's revealed that she kills Thrax, the son of Ares. Thrax is her child, who is very heavily implied the product of rape by Ares. Yeah, yeah. Also, the vocal cast is just incredible. This was 2009. Carrie Russell, Nathan Fillion. Mm -hmm. Virginia Madsen, mm -hmm. Rosario Dawson, mm -hmm. Alfred Molina, and then Oliver Platt. They were really well-regarded actors at the time, and they're still pretty big. And side note, mm -hmm. Oliver Platt was in both of the movies that we watched for this episode. Yep. And yep. I literally thought of that when you said that. <laughs> yeah. And he fucking steals every scene he's in. He was just this delightful, villainous Hades and he's kind of gross, but he's also just wonderfully sinister. I really dug that. And I also really dug how it felt like a pretty faithful adaptation of the origin while still feeling fresh and fast. Like this movie is not long. That kind of leads into something that I didn't like, which is that it's a very short movie. It's barely over an hour long. Yeah. I feel like we needed a director's cut or something because... Some of the plot lines could have been fleshed out a little bit more. Like, this is something. Look who wants like, a director's cut now. I know. <laughs> Release the Simone cut or something. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there were a couple of, of sub plot lines that were kind of just glossed over. Like I mentioned, Thrax is actually Diana's half brother. I feel like maybe there might have been something more there. And maybe there wasn't. Who knows? But it just it, it felt like something that I would have liked a little more room to breathe and that's it it was pretty solid that said there were some problematic elements like steve was so gross and so cringy uh, 
He kept calling her Angel, and I just wanted to punch him in the jaw. Which, I mean, so that's like a thing from the comics and his earlier incarnations, but this time around, it just felt gross. It felt like, babe, and, you know, that. Yeah, yeah. He just, he rolled in and was like, oh, naked ladies, I'm in the right place for me. I'm like, (laughs) and the problem is that Nathan Fillion was just too good at making him a sleazebag. Mm-hmm. Which love Nathan Fillion. I do too. It's like, okay, dude, we get it. He's kind of a gross misogynist. We don't need him to hit on Diana for the fifth time in as many minutes. And yeah, exactly. Etta Candy viewing Diana as competition was also dumb. <laughs> yeah. Etta Candy's always been one of her best friends. And I still think that her incarnation in the original movie was pitch perfect. And then her being this skinny little supermodel who's trying to flirt with Steve was dumb. You mentioned the other problematic misogynistic elements that I noted. The only other thing, and this wasn't an actual problem, was that I didn't realize how much better Wonder Woman's costume is these days rather than the super swimsuit that we had for so long. Yes. Like, it's funny because growing up with it, I never thought about it. And then really only in the last five years or so, we've gotten a much more armored, sensible outfit that looks really badass. Her skirt is modeled after gladiator skirts from Roman times. And she looks like a warrior as opposed to a supermodel. It was just kind of disconcerting to see that in action for a while. It's still not as bad as the costume that David E. Kelly tried to do back in 2011. Have you seen that? I don't even want to remember. I don't even know if I want to remember that. I'll have to look it up. Was it awful? It's so bad. It's he he tried to do a pilot. So David E. Kelly is the guy who created Ally McBeal. Oh, no. Yeah, j- just look it up. Look up David E. Kelly and Wonder Woman and you'll see the costume. It looks like something out of the slutty section of a Halloween store. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. It's yeah, no, it's OK. I'll describe this. It's pleather. It's just pleather. Yeah, it's basically boning and pleather no and that's it it's bad yeah and and there's this one picture where she's running and legitimately it looks like she's gonna start showing nip yeah any second because her boobs are just flying out of their bustier she was played by the actress adrian palicki i can't remember how her last name is pronounced but she was on a bunch of shows she was on friday night lights agents of shield for a while and then she was in the second gi joe movie she is a really fun actress when she's given good material and she is a stunningly pretty woman with a heinously unrealistic body but whatever she was in supernatural too yeah that sounds about right you you can look up the clips on youtube it is real bad it is real bad anyway see this is why i have such a hard time sticking with dc things I'll see something good and I'm like, oh, okay, I can give them a chance again. And then I just see something horrendous and it turns me off of them for so long. And somebody's like, let's watch this. And I'm like, are you a mad person? I'm sorry that I broke <laughs> your love for Wonder Woman. <laughs> no, actually, you honestly have inspired my love for Wonder Woman a little bit more. I already loved Gal. Yeah. You know, Gal Gadot's doing great. I loved that aspect of it. But the history itself is interesting. It's fascinating. I'm really glad that I got to learn all this from you. Yeah. Actually, fun fact about the character's outfit that I don't know why I didn't have it in here. I think I just missed putting it in there. The bracelets that Wonder Woman wears, Mm -hmm. those cuffs, 
they're actually based off of bracelets that Burn used to wear instead of wedding rings. That's so cool. Yes. So it was a direct take from their relationship that was inspired by her wearing those as a signification of their relationship. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And they're still there to this day. So it's, you know, yeah, so interesting. Yeah, that's the big thing about her is the bulletproof bracelets and the lasso. Yeah. So that lasso of obedience. (laughs) The lasso of truth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's time for us to discuss that one thing, comics or comics adjacent, that we haven't been able to stop thinking about lately. Mike, what's been wrinkling in your brain? <laughs> uh, so this happened in the news today. Do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Vaguely, yes. Okay. He is, to put it mildly, an extremely problematic psychology professor up in Canada who became famous back in 2016 because he got mad on YouTube about gender pronouns and blew up <sighs> with all the usual groups who glom onto that bullshit. Since then, the alt-right shitheel section of the internet has really embraced his teaching about gender and masculinity, and he sucks. So anyway, <laughs> I'm probably going to butcher his name because I've never actually heard it spoken out, but Tanahasi Coates, who I believe he's also like a poet laureate, but he's been writing comics for a while. So he has a recent Captain America comic out, which features the Red Skull running a website where he's providing quote unquote informational videos about things like the feminist trap and Mm. 10 rules for life, which is a direct parody of Peterson because he wrote a book called 12 rules for life (laughs) where he's lecturing his viewers about how America today is weak. And he's talking about how man today is a caretaker and, and he has no moral steel in his spine or whatever. He says this while it's featuring. Oh, it's terrible. But his quotes are being featured over footage of Captain America getting his ass kicked and getting trodden over. So it's like, if you embrace the the values of decency, you're going to get walked all over. And he tells his viewers, I offer you the sword of manhood. So one of Peterson's fans alerted him to this today, and he got big mad about it, like legit offended (laughs) that someone's equating what he spouts to what the Red Skull would say. And I have been cackling. all day about how all these red pill MRA dipshits are just raging at the fact that someone pointed out how their senpai, the dude that they worship, is saying the exact same shit one of Marvel's biggest villains would if he was on YouTube. And all of us who are looking at the Red Skull saying this for the most part are like, you know, that checks out. Oh no. Don't you hate it when you realize you're on the wrong side? Oh god, it's like I don't know, man. If everybody's telling you that you're an asshole, maybe you're an asshole. Yeah, it's hard. It's like the person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room usually isn't kind of a deal. Yeah. Well. (laughs) What is that, Dunnings-Kruger or something? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So how about you? What has been on your brain lately? Well, I, I don't really like watching trailers for films these days because I feel like They tend to give away the whole plot line and all the good bits of the movie. But I did happen to catch a glimpse of the Black Widow film that's coming out soon. Mm. And I'm very excited. 
Really? Okay, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. Oh, you haven't seen the the trailer for it yet? Yeah, I haven't seen the trailer. Oh, yeah. I'm just excited for more MCU. I'm not going to lie. I just love me some MCU. And plus, give me more female MCU characters yeah. with their own films and series. Like, give, give, give. Yeah. A lot like, of them are coming to Disney+. Plus, but yes. But this is like the first time that we're getting a female superhero in theaters technically if you're listening to us in the future we're recording this while the pandemic is still going on and Mm -hmm. you know from mcu you mean because i mean obviously we have the dc the dceu that had wonder woman come out yeah that's what i meant it's like the first female superhero from marvel yeah exactly it's just i just think it's gonna be so good please i went and saw catwoman in theaters hey that's great yeah (laughs) With Halle Berry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Halle Berry is Catwoman. Come on. That's a classic. Classic. Uh, I, I still, she brought her Oscar with her to the Razzies and accepted the Razzie Award for Catwoman and gave a whole speech holding her Academy Award. Oh, God. I thought that was <laughs> like, she could do no wrong after that. I was like, fine. She's I will pay money to go see you and whatever. Exactly. Exactly. She's just such a good actor to begin with. She just brings her whole self to every role and and not in a gross, like, I'm going to send people rats like Jared Leto, but not one of those stupid ass asshole method actors. But she's a just she's a different character in every role she plays, which you really can't say that about every actor. Yeah, she's one of those actors that I. I have never sat there and went, God, she was dog shit. I'm like, it wasn't a good movie, but she was fun. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's never the main complaint about those movies. No. Now, what I would like to see is some more variation in body types and race, but I will take the baby steps if we're headed in the direction of at least getting some women included. Let's start small. We'll get bigger from there. Yeah. 100% with you. Yeah. Normalize so. the mom and dad bod. Come on. We dare you, Mark. Yes. DC, do it. Exactly. You started out strong with Thor. He's still <laughs> enough. Thor is still <laughs> enough. I should still be able to be enough in my pandemic bod, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier, and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by cut underscore thistles on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter the official podcast account is tencent takes surprise surprise i am at jessica with a k and jessica's spelled with a k by the way and mike is van sau v-a-n-s-a-u stay safe out there and support your local comic shop <laughs>